to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that loves and appreciates its respective mothers. That's all for today. Thanks, moms. (laughs) Thanks, moms. (laughs) Yeah, thanks to all the mothers. And I, you know, as I read that one, not my most creative, but maybe my most sincere, it's probably also not true. (laughs) I'm sure all the book clubs out there, you know, I'm sure plenty of them love their mothers. Yes, true. But chat. Shout out Star Moms anyway, even if I couldn't come up with a more creative intro for this week's episode. Wanted to play it sincere, since my feelings about this book that I'm about to present will be also fairly sincere, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) If you do have no idea why we're referencing Mothers, this is the Lightly Literary Podcast, and as I mentioned, you have found a book club episode today. This is part two of a book club. We like to, when we're analyzing a book, to split those episodes into two parts. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Amanda. Welcome back, Amanda. Hello. And I'm Travis. I should probably say my own name, too. You know, for new listeners, people out there who I've bamboozled into joining us for this episode and who have been tricked into a bombardment of negativity. Let's see if that holds up. You can find us on social media. We have accounts at Facebook and Instagram that we update with the books we've chosen, reading schedule, that kind of thing, some art on Instagram, if I can if I can keep up with it. This is the weekend, I, I swear. This is the one. <laughs> I'll catch up finally, like three weeks behind. Anyway, the accounts you can find us and follow us at are at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, so easy to search and find and follow there. Um, we always pick at least three to four books ahead, so if you want to plan ahead and get those books from a library or a bookstore your choice you can do so today as i mentioned will be a book club episode so it's going to be an analytical deep dive into a book Uh, last week we began trevor noah's born a crime stories from a south african childhood and today we'll be finishing that book so just as a heads up we are we're going to be covering i mean specifically chapter 12 to the ending or 13 to the ending but the whole book at this point is fair game we'll be spoiling and discussing elements from the whole story or collection of stories so if that bothers you feel free to hit pause go check out our book recommendation or maybe even just part one because yes the entire book will be spoiled today and discussed so be forewarned anything amanda before we jump in uh nope i'm ready Okay, I hope I am ready as well. I can't promise you that I am, but let's do this. (laughs) Only one way to find out. (laughs) We're going to begin with the first segment for today's episode, which is an update to our Cocktail Party Quotes segment. This is pretty simple. Whenever we do nonfiction, we just like to pull quotes that we think are of general interest that could make for interesting discussion with friends, perhaps at a cocktail party, a COVID-safe one, of course. Amanda, why don't you throw us into the fire this week for the second half? Tell us about a Cocktail Party Quote you chose. Sure. Um, I chose one from page 243, and this is um, Trevor Noah's mother speaking to him. And Mm -hmm. she says, if I don't punish you, the world will punish you even worse. The world doesn't love you. If the police get you, the police don't love you. When I beat you, I'm trying to save you. When they beat you, they're trying to kill you. Um, I chose this quote because the message um, reminds me of when we read Ta-Nehisi Coates, the um, uh, Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. He he talks about, he mentions and and describes um, some of the, um, from from some perspective, the the violence within families where the the spankings, the beatings, the the tough love that often occurs, but it's meant it's it is from a place of of love and fear mm-hmm. um, and the fear of authority figures who racially profile and don't understand um, 
what actually happens, you know, or even care. So I, I chose that quote to, because I, I immediately thought of that. Um, but it also, mm-hmm. by, by my thinking of Ta-Nehisi Coates, I was like, the mother saying that is great. Um, but again, instead of a, a rich like description or like a rich scene of us seeing that, um, we get dialogue, we get a, a quick paced like listing story rather than a whole bunch of description. Whereas even in Ta-Nehisi Coates's, um, work, that one was, um, the, between the world and me was a letter. It's like a love letter to a son in a, in a sense. And, yeah, um, yeah. and it wasn't meant to be overly descriptive, but even I feel like the descriptions in there, you can really sense Ta-Nehisi Coates's, um, writing style in right. that, yeah. in that particular nonfiction. And so I, I was trying to also draw like a, there's a parallel in theme, but also there's like completely different writing styles there. Yeah, no, completely. I think that his mom does come alive in the second half and she was in the first half too, through the, you know, primarily the dialogue. And I think you chose right. a, you chose a good quote. I mean, not only to demonstrate how stylistically yeah, he probably leans too much on this dialogue that often just felt flat to me or maybe it was overly long or something you know or that the Mm -hmm. lead in i think the lead-ins just and the lead-outs didn't do it for me or something but at any rate the quote certainly like philosophically speaking is an intriguing one to discuss because i mean obviously she's presenting two options and both of them are you have to get beaten there's no other third non-beating option either i will do it with love or they'll do it with hate either way it's time to get beat and so i there's there are a few like interesting philosophical quandaries this book poses in in either direct or roundabout kind of ways. I think we'll get to later in the essays a more basic question of just I think Trevor Noah for his part explains his own perspective in the book pretty clearly especially especially in the Alex chapter when he's working I mean, he he calls it a ghetto, right? I'm not sure what we should call it. Just like a an impoverished neighborhood that is unique, basically. Like a he compares it to the favelas of Rio. I just don't know if it has a name other than Alex. That's what in the book they call it. Yeah, it's just yeah called Alex. Yeah, Alex. But when he's in Alex, I think that's when some of his most lucid points come come out. I was hoping that as I mentioned this in part one, but I was hoping that as he got older in the book and the stories got older, that he would have some more intriguing things to say perhaps. And I think he Mm -hmm. did overall. I I don't know if I still felt like affected or changed uh, by them or anything, but I think that also holds up pretty well there because essentially he does some pretty questionable things there, but essentially his point is you have to look out for yourself. It's all about the bottom line. No one's looking out for you. It's hostile world. You know, you make your ends meet, you do what you can. If you if you can do it without hurting anyone, all the better. But kind of like, it's just a big shrug, kind of. Like, you know, we do what we had to do. And, you know, there's not, I wouldn't say there has to be remorse there. It's pretty clear that he is rem- utterly remorseless. I mean, he literally says as much in the in part one that he has no regrets over anything that he has done, I guess, yeah. or something. I forget the quote exactly. I quoted it in part one. And so... Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he looks at it with a lot of judgment. I I know he kind of accepts that she had to do that and had to raise him that way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I bet he would just write it off to circumstance and essentially say, given my you know conditions of my life, where I was, the time of it, our our economics, our the whole thing, the race dynamics of post-apartheid, ever everything compounded. I think he'd be pretty comfortable just kind of saying it was the circumstances. Um, you know, in that sense, then Abel comes off. 
he's almost the most interesting figure in a sense then because he too is a, a aggressively a part of a product of that environment too I mean, he is, yeah. the way he demonstrates his masculinity, whether that's a cultural expectation, as Trevor kind of mentions and talks through, or if it's more the difficult economics of, you know, keeping, keeping people who were in South Africa into in poverty and through, you know, mechanisms that were in or out of his control, or if it was personal flaws. I don't know. So, yeah, it did, it did remind me a bit of his circumstances, too, that quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Let me pull then. I think I had one that also had dialogue in it. Let me pull this from 241. I think I don't think it worked for me in the back half. I think I'm going to try and in the best way I can leave most of my more detailed criticisms in part one. I was already overly long there. So I'll try and be a little more brief. <laughs> I think so. This dialogue exchanges with him and the judge when he's on his kind of bail hearing. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, I broke down. I've been putting on this tough guy facade for nearly a week, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm, I'm not fine, Your Honor. I'm not fine. He looked confused. What? I said, I'm not fine, sir. I'm really suffering. Why are you telling me this? Because you asked how I was. Who asked you? You did. You just asked me. I didn't say, how are you? I said, who are you? Why would I waste time asking, how are you? This is jail. I know everyone is suffering down there. If I asked everyone, how are you? We'd all be here all day. Who are you? State your name for the record. Trevor Noah. Okay, now we can carry on. The whole courtroom started laughing, and he does too, and I'll just cut it off there. I think this... um, this was as close as kind of lively as the the dialogue got, I guess, um, because he's trying to remember a real exchange. I don't think the actual banter in it is that interesting, but it's obviously just a really comedic moment in a tense situation. Mm-hmm. This moment, though, did demonstrate or at least fully put my mind at ease or at rest that I don't think a lot of it works, but I'm certain that if he did this as a stand-up bit, he could do a voice for the judge. He could kind of, he could strut across the stage and like turn and like turn around and be like, I didn't, you know, he could like put on a persona for himself and then for the judge and he could change mm-hmm. the, the inflections and all that stuff. And like, again, I just think this is dead on the page. I don't know what to say. I, I already pulled quotes from part one. It Part two didn't change my mind. I, it doesn't feel lively or anything to me, uh, but I can see, especially there, if you're willing to do the mental work of like, oh, just do this like a stand-up routine in your head, and sure, this could be fun. I, I would hope the audiobook is really lively, I guess, is my final point on the dialogue. Well, what did you think of the dialogue between um, Trevor Noah when he was DJing at the Jewish school and the woman after she... Yeah, yeah unplugs the the system there like what did you think of that particular exchange because he does again use dialogue there yeah yeah i actually pulled a quote i thought that so that was one of the only moments in the book that made me i i you know can't recall if i laughed but i I definitely remember thinking like this is a pretty hilarious mix-up or this is funny or you know I, i maybe chuckled or whatever i i think the moments comedic richness whether we want to believe that they really could have made such an error or not, I, you know, obviously I'm taking the whole thing at its word. I'm not going to, would never accuse any of this of being incorrect, but it's one of those so ab- things that are so extreme and absurd. You have to wonder if it's real, but it's probably what makes it real. Anyway, I, I don't remember the, I remember a lot of that dialogue around that moment, right? Being, it's a lot of them chanting, which again, like you have to do the favorite. He doesn't describe the scene that much. He doesn't describe, he just says like the crowd went wild or I'm, I, that was, I shouldn't make up cliches. There's plenty I could just find. Um, let me go. <laughs> I shouldn't, I don't need to do that work. I can just go pull one from the book. Um, and so let me, 
Yeah, so the, like the dialogue here. I started the song. This is on 197. I started the song. The dancers fanned out in their semicircle, and I got on the mic. Are you guys ready? Yeah. You guys are not ready. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Let's give it up. Let's give up some noise for Hitler. And that's all in caps and elongated. I Yeah, like if you put something in all caps and elongate it, which is a stylistic thing he likes to do with swear words too, though not the caps, just the elongation. I, I get the point of it. I get that it's louder and drawn out and rhetorically, I guess that's one way of doing it. I, I again, can't say it's especially evocative to me. Um, the, the next description is right. Hitler jumped out in the middle of the circle and started killing it. The guys around him were all chanting, go Hitler, go Hitler, which I'm intoning that. I'm assuming that's how they would say it. They mm-hmm. had their arms out in front of them, bouncing to the rhythm. And I was right there in the mic leading them along, go Hitler. And it says go Hitler a bunch of times on that page, like in that paragraph, like 20 times. And so the whole room stopped. No one was dancing. The teacher chaperones, the parents, the hundreds of Jewish kids in their yarmulkes. They froze and stared aghast up at the stage. I was oblivious. So was Hitler. We kept going for and so, you know, from there, narrates it out or whatever. I, I thought it was the funniest moment. I mean, obviously, that a lot of that humor has to be in the chant of their of their just ignorance of who Hitler was or why that would be meaningful, all that stuff. I, I'll remember the moment for its absurdity. It's rather absurd comedy. It's pretty gallows humor, you know. And I think I'll remember all of that. I, I can't say I'll remember their exchange at the end, the banter of it. The chanting, I think, is funny. I mean... I, again, I, I can't tell if it's funny because it happened or if it's funny because of the way it was written. I look at this again and I'm like, that's just a funny, really absurd scenario to find yourself in. Um, yeah. It must be one of the only places in the world you can start a Go Hitler chant and not get <laughs> yeah. straight. I guess I should say, um, the like he notes too, the Western world. Um, it, it, nowhere in the Western world could you probably pull that off outside of like a, you know, a hate mob meeting or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I think I'll remember all of that. I Well, I remember the way it was written or that he wrote the same chant 20 times in one paragraph. Like, I don't, I don't think so. The chanting, it does make it funny. I don't know if I need to see it that many times to make it so, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, any reactions to that scene? I th- it was, I wrote it down as one of my quotes, too. Yeah, I, I loved that story just because you're right. It's so absurd, but also, like, I mean, it's just a weird and and funny scene but what i really enjoyed too was was the miscommunication between um trevor noah and and the director of the the program because she he's coming at it from a place of she's judging us based on our race and our culture and she's coming at it from the same thing but there are two opposing viewpoints and they're just completely like missing each other's points there and it's uh And I just find that both sad and kind of funny. Yeah, I think it's a point as a kind of social observation. It's not an observation. It happened. A a social insight into South Africa and the transitions and and all of the, you know, culture clash and all of that stuff that was happening, especially in the early, you know, post-apartheid years. Anyway. As kind of a moment for that, yes, I'll I'll remember it for sure. And it's absurdism and stuff. I Again, I don't. I don't know if like their exact exchange came alive to me or anything. I, I can't say mm. I remember. And I'm like looking at the page now. I, I I don't know. There's not anything in there that they said that was again particularly pointed or witty, insightful. I, it's just a pretty clear like exchange of I don't like you you people. What do you mean you people? You're the worst. You're gonna lose. Like it's I don't know. It all feels very 
I, I don't know. I don't know if any of the writing pops to you, but the exchange, yes. It's. I feel like I'm going to circle back to the same criticism. I, you know, I just need to hit a mute button on myself. But it's like the story is remarkable. The his life is remarkable. I just don't think I'll remember anything about the way that was written, though. I mean, it, you know, yeah, remarkable because it happened, not because of how it is portrayed. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point. Yeah. Any other cocktail party quotes for you? Sure. Um, I chose one from page 189. McDonald's, to me, tasted like America. McDonald's is America. You see it advertised, and it looks amazing. You crave it. You buy it. You take your first bite, and it blows your mind. It's even better than you imagined. Then, halfway through, you realize that it's not all it's cracked up to be. A few bites later, you're like, hmm, there's a lot wrong with this. Then you're done. You miss it like crazy, and you go back for more. So what I found interesting about this is like mm-hmm. here again is just another example of, of his use of um, modern illusions in order to make a point about something. But I found this interesting um, in that he said that McDonald's is America and then he goes on to describe it, which to me means that this is also a description of how he feels about America in sure. general, yeah, yeah. right? Which is his like adopted country pretty much, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering, like, what do you think? Do you think that that's an accurate depiction of America? Do I you think... crave it, you buy yeah. it, you take your first bite, and it blows your mind, and then you realize that it's not right. Mm-hmm. But then I, you come back for more. I, certainly, I don't... I, I feel put in a t- tough position as someone who has been born and raised here and has never... You know, it's like this is all I've known. So I can't say Mm -hmm. I think as an outsider's interpretation of it, it is very, you know, it's clever. Like, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I would say that my my eating experience at McDonald's doesn't quite reflect that either. It's not (laughs) I don't know. I I also feel like I, I suppose the numbers don't lie. I don't know why I'm trying to think overthink this so much. Like, I don't think that many people today would hold that up as like, I hope this is the number one culture we can offer other places. But we know that highly efficient fast food, the the d- distribution mechanism of it all, the delivery system of it all, like it is the thing we can export most efficiently to other places. So I guess, I yeah, I mean, as a metaphor or a symbol of America, I guess I can't dispute that it's a pretty apt one. I would hope I don't know, like, to me, McDonald's has nothing to do with America because I don't like McDonald's. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like I certainly ate a lot of it growing up or something, so I guess it has, like, a place in my mind. Um, But, uh, no, I think the way it was incorporated, the way he talks about it feels perfectly acceptable, and he can get the whole blows your mind part, right? Like, I can't connect to that, but I could see exactly why he would. Or, you know, in the story, I think he conveys well why he does have that reaction. I, I guess we never see how that exactly connects to his adult life having some success living in America. Like, I don't think he's ever lived in America as not a pretty profound success. He didn't he come over here for the daily show job or was he, I actually don't know if he was here for a long time before that. I know that's just, that's just when he became famous to to me, I guess, you know, to an everyday person or whatever. So I I just, I think his vision, you know, of America is going to be unique in that sense too, like pretty skewed. And so, yeah. yeah, which is all fair enough. Like, I'm sure when he came over here, he was offered that job. He's living in New York City. I'm assuming he's well paid. Like, New York City is a great, like most major cities, is great if you're well paid. It's It's got to be tantalizing. That's got to make an amazing first bite. And then I'm sure yeah. as he dug into like, well, there's other parts of this country too, huh? There's a pretty big country. Oh, the, what's going on in this area? What's Oh, what's up with this? What's this? 
police shooting issue. And I like we already talked about in part one, his comments last summer, I think were quite helpful and insightful and everything with during the protests and Black Lives Matter, all that stuff. So I think, yeah, I think he's gotten a different kind of exposure or something. But yeah, I, I, I will remember that comparison, too. When you pulled that quote, I think that's a that's a good one. Did, what was your reaction to it? It um, it made me think back actually on um, native speaker because he I've there's a couple of times where I've I've made that connection because in native speaker he Henry the main character is um, his father is an immigrant as well so it made me mm-hmm. think back on how um, Chang Ray Lee had depicted um, American life for an immigrant yeah. as well and so I think that it was pretty accurate because there's like you, when you first move here it's like this amazing thing um, but then you realize that it's not you know a utopia there are issues here mm-hmm. um, and and then that's going to be when you like realize that it's not all it's cracked up to be Yeah. and yeah. it might be that you're like man I really miss home and stuff but then thinking about going back and comparing it to the life that you've got here perhaps you would choose to stay here instead so yeah, yeah, I think that um, I think that that works out in my mind as far as what I've read in other immigrant um, memoirs and stories. For sure, for sure. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And we don't really get maybe he'll do a follow book about his time just in America or something. Who knows? But he will. I was just reading up on it, and he's in the he's um, writing a second memoir about mm. um, that is like the next thing that happens after the the end of this. Gotcha. This okay. Memoir, so, yeah. Get it on my... And they're making a movie of this one, of Born a Crime, uh-huh. apparently. No yeah. comment for me. <laughs> Go forth. Good luck in all your endeavors. <laughs> It'll make for one heck of a movie. It's a story that deserves to be told, with, with no doubt. Mm-hmm. Final quote for me, for Cocktail Party Quotes, um, from 212. I thought the... So, I thought the Alex section was, I mean, far and away the most interesting complex and detailed insightful like i again it's no surprise that i connected to the i was waiting for some of the more adult young adult stuff just because i had a suspicion that it would be maybe a bit less cliched and a bit more i don't know intricate or something but and so i enjoyed this section i think the most Mm -hmm. um still i would say pretty only pretty modestly but I, i did get a lot out of it um one section i wanted to talk about was the kind of just the way he spends his time there and the kind of the money of it all. <laughs> um, there, here's the paragraph that sets it up on 212, kind of his job, which was mostly mixing CDs and kind of making music. But then he essentially turned that into a loan shark business, honestly. So anyway, this is right. how it starts. So now this guy's walking away with a DVD player and 10 round. Is it Rand or Rond? I'm not sure. Rand is how I said it in my mind, but okay. I'm not sure. Apologies either way. In his pocket, <laughs> he's feeling like he got a good deal. He brings us the Nikes, and then we go to one of those cheesier cheese boys up in East Bank, and then we say, yo, dude, we know you want the new Jordans. They're 300 in the shops. We'll sell them to you for 200 We sell them the shoes, and now we've gone and turned 60 Rand into 200 That's the hood. Someone's always buying. Someone's always selling, and the hustle is about trying to be in the middle uh, of the whole thing. None of it was legal. Nobody knew where anything came from. The guy who got us the Nikes, did he really have a staff discount? You don't know. You don't ask. It's just, hey, look what I found, and cool, how much do you want? That's the international code. And then he goes on from there. Now, I think, gosh, there's a lot we could take away from his time in Alex. I I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I'm just going to fully jump ahead now because who cares? We're, we do what we want here on our own pod. 
We do a segment called The Lost Pages where we talk about something that we wish the book would have explored more, an additional chapter or part or segment, character, whatever, part. Uh, and I think, so here's my wild pitch. This whole book should have just been Alex stuff. Should have just been stories from then, break it out, be a lot more detailed with it, work the memory more, you know, be, allow yourself more time to describe things, really live in that, in those moments, those details, just because the, the way that this system works. And so he eventually turns into a, a predatory, a, a predatory, but nonviolent, which is how he, I think can sleep at night, uh, with this scheme they made up. Um, he, they, they raised interest rates and, and did interest and everything and, and charge people probably like, you know, higher than a real loan. But of course they're doing a service because the government doesn't have interest in loaning money to, to people, to just black people, colored people in South Africa, obviously America has that same issue with financial institutions and stuff. So, you know, they're doing that. They're justifying it. Um, he does conclude it with, I thought a pretty interesting example though, which is that they use the information to then get a girl out of her house to a party. And he goes out of his way to describe how the prettiest girls are like locked away in their homes, like treasures. They can't come outside. And you know, the way he describes it, it's as if they were doing her a huge favor, but the end of this bartering scheme and and loan sharking and whatever, I mean, he does that. That is the example he chooses to end on. That's the thing that right. he culminates, or he chooses that climax for. And this is how this worked out for us, or this is how we took advantage of this, or what it, I, kind of like how it benefited us. I I don't know how, sort of. Again, he does say and goes out of his way. Let me find the quote so I don't because this is a sensitive enough thing that I should probably quote kind of how he phrased it. And so. So here it is. I found it on 216 and 15. Then we'd go to the party. We'd invite the girl who was usually thrilled to escape her mother's prison. The guy would bring the beer. He'd get to hang out with the girl. We'd write off the mom's debt to show her our gratitude, and we'd make our money back selling the beer. There was always a way to make it work, and often that was the most fun part, working the angle, angles, solving the puzzle, seeing what goes where, who needs what, whom we can connect with, and who can get us the money. So... It's man, it's awfully complex. So <laughs> I don't know how to unpack this. Um, teenagers scheming in creative ways to try and find people to date or take out on dates or hook up with or whatever. I don't know. That's not a uncommon phenomenon in I presume most cultures. So I don't know. To that, I kind of shrug. To have it culminate in this way, it feels a little creepy, manipulative. Like to to have that be the example he wants to use in his book to th say, mm -hmm. don't you see how it kind of aren't weren't we clever? We had this great puzzle solving scheme, but it it was the end result was I mean they made some money, but also like we just really wanted to get this girl out of her house because she was a protected like asset. You know the word choice is not by accident. She was in prison, quote his words, but and then and then of course she'd be thrilled, quote to go. I you know are those things true? Sure. I don't know. I wasn't there and I can't speak to her state and <laughs> sort of whether she felt like she wanted to go to these parties or not. I just found it to be a little bit creepy that, 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 that whole entire section had to culminate with that moment. I don't know. Yeah. Any reactions to it or thoughts? Yeah. So when I read that part too, I was like, Oh my gosh, like just, and this is um, like why I asked for my my essay section. The the question that I asked you is like the the relationship with women in this book is just really like just weird um, in a lot of ways. And I don't want to be like 
judgmental necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But so in this particular scene, uh, he's describing like whenever a mom comes up to you and tells you like to do something. And if, you know, as long as you're not busy doing something else, you do it. Right. Which shows like a level of respect there. Of course. But also then you're taking out the daughter, not because you want to help the daughter, despite the use of the word prison, you are using that daughter. You are using the relationship that you have. You're using the trust that you created with the mother in order to get the girl for some other dude. It's almost like pimping in a lot of ways, right? <sighs> yeah, the money aspect does, because I can think of, so I'm not, let's not be above personal scrutiny here, of course. I, not that we're here to, that's not the podcast we run, but whatever, We're it's too late now. Un- uncork <laughs> the can or the bottle. But anyway, so like, yeah, I can think of like really awkward social stuff I did to be with my friends to go meet up with girls and being weird outside their house and like, just doing again i can call my behavior this in retrospect for sure it was just like creepy weird behavior following them from school like teasing them from a distance you know you're like in different groups walking behind them but you and you know it's like you don't know how to flirt so you tease instead and be mean and all that stuff whatever and Mm -hmm. so it's in a sense the the couple of ways he meets girls in the story or women we'd say girls i guess anyway i'll leave that pedantic point to someone else but the it does just feel a little more bartery, exchangey, like zero personal connection. And then the money thing does, uh, it just adds an, a real layer of creep to it. A real layer right. of, I, you know, I think you threw out pimping. I, I don't know. I mean, I know that in terms of like, if we were to list off and create here a, an encyclopedic definition, I don't think it would hit all of the list or many, but like it hits enough of it to just make me feel a little queasy. And I just don't know why that had to be the ultimate conclusion to his uh, kind of like manipulative loan shark time in Alex. I just, it, yeah, it did feel creepy to me. Yeah, me too. I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. He could have just yeah. concluded with, we made a ton of money and we got some credit in exchange and like people knew us, our business, but like he had to go and add in the, the kind of social dynamic that just does seem, a, I don't know, a little bit rotten in it, I think. Yeah. For sure. And and the other quote that I chose actually relates to um, an exchange like that as well, which was his date from um, when he was going to the the Matrix dance because his friend essentially like made a deal for him. Right. So this is, again, the idea of like a kind of barter system in order to get a woman. Um, which just blows my mind for so many reasons because his he made a point of putting in there that his mother constantly was teaching him how to respect a woman. Look at me when you walk into the room. Talk directly to me and make eye contact when you come into the room. Don't say this. Don't do this, right? So, like, yeah, his yeah. mother was making the effort and it just seems like it... I don't know. So, on page 177... Um, I pulled the quote, I'd been mesmerized by her beauty and just the idea of her. I didn't know I was supposed to talk to her. The naked women on my computer, I'd never had to talk to them, ask them their opinions, ask them about their feelings. Um, So I pulled that quote because it's like, it just shows how the, his relationship with women, it's just so, I, I don't know, like different, I suppose. I, I mean, I'm I'm not a guy, so I don't know like what it was like to be a teenager and like mm-hmm. and yeah. that stuff. So I mean, uh, 
so I don't want to be too judgmental, but at the same time, he had made such a point of like his mom was really trying to drive home the fact that he needed to respect women. And then like seeing how his mom like survived Abel and everything as well. And and just, I don't know. It was just a, a, the relationship with women in this uh, book just really like blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, it shows that a lot of those, when you parent hard and you parent aggressive and you parent fast, it, some of those things don't stick either at all or not at first. And I, I'm sure for him, it eventually stuck or something, you know, I, we don't know how he is as an adult person in relationships, but, right. and so, but yes, it, the, it is directly contradictory in the book for sure. I think to, for my part, my simple summary to wrap this part up would just be, he does go out of his way throughout the whole thing to emphasize that he was awkward, isolated, socially trapped because of race and because of these horrific laws and the, the after effects of that. And so that made him uncomfortable. It also, he also goes out of his way to bring up when he's in school, how he, didn't really have much self-esteem. He just wanted to shift between groups, but he didn't actually ever see that he was the person who should be. I mean, he uses like cliches around American rom-coms. Like I think he says like get the girl or win the girl or win the, I don't know what the cliches were. I don't remember, but he does describe it in those terms of kind of like, I was the outcast, not the, not the all-star kid, not the Mm -hmm. cool kid who would get the girl. And so I think part of it is just him trying to emphasize that point a little more. I think it doesn't just it just doesn't come across that well, and it does lead to some odd, yeah, some sort of contradictions with the mother, especially since the the matric dance is kind of a major. That's like a major long story in the book, and so to have yeah. it so aggressively contradict like his mom's lessons on thoughtfulness and attentiveness, and so yeah, just kind of an odd narrative choice, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's move to the imaginary essays, then. I imagine we'll start with yours. Throw it at me, why don't you? <laughs> this is the part yeah. I should explain the segment. Um, this is the part <laughs> in part two of the book clubs when we give each other an essay prompt that the other person prepares an outline for, not the actual essay, of course, just some thoughts to reflect on the book and kind of do one last analytical deep dive into its themes and ideas and such. Amanda, go ahead and throw yours out there. I know we've, I'm honestly not going to say too much more than what we've said. I have a couple examples I want to talk through, but go ahead and throw it out there. Nice. Um, Women are a major component of Noah's life, especially his mother. He mentions a couple times in the book that he was raised by women, surrounded by women. However, he struggles to make connections with women. He also includes several discussions on the perceptions and expectations of women in South Africa. What role do women play in this book and in Trevor Noah's life? Does there seem to be a grander connection between his relationships and perceptions of women and those of his society? Yeah. So I think let's start with the most obvious and kind of work out from there. And I didn't, I'm freestyling this one today. Sorry. <laughs> I completely forgot to prep for this. <laughs> I knew when you texted me before we started that I, something was wrong and I was like, oh yeah, what's wrong is that I forgot to do this, but that's okay. I recall <laughs> enough to, I mean, there's clear, the answer is clear, right? We have to talk about his mother first. I mean, it's right with that. If she was not in this book, if, if let's say he didn't know his mother and he was raised by a, a quiet you know, unintrusive aunt who he just lived with quietly in the city and she never talked to him and he got to live his life. Like this book would be total uh, doorstopper. Like, I don't know what I would do with this book then because I, <laughs> it, it would be, I don't know, it would be missing like the only thing that really drew me in. So anyway, what do I take away from his mother's role? I think it is complex. I think ultimately it, we can kind of reflect this in his time in Alex too, which is just that 
it's okay to love something that's compromised and that you that was difficult for you. I mean, in Alex, he reflects on how it was a warm community there. They kind of did their own thing. They looked out for their own. They protected each other. It's, you know, they even, I think he said when they caught criminals, he goes out of his way to describe a, a rape, which I guess I'll have to put in a trigger warning now in this one. But I just, I also thought that was kind of an odd, I mean, maybe it's a common like issue or something there, but he like went out of his way to say that example, which I also thought was just like, why? I don't, anyway, but you know, they like punish their own criminals. They, they have their own justice, whatever it's, they, they take care of each other. And the mother, like you said, getting them the bread and the milk was part of that too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think then she kind of reflects that, which is kind of like she's imperfect, little chaotic, maybe a little extreme or something, but that you have to love her for what the good she did for you and showed you and not just the sort of the way she was harsh with you or made you go to excessive church services and all that kind of thing. And so... I think the moment had I prepped the quotes for this, but we can still talk about it. But the moment with her, I would have wanted to talk about the most. And he doesn't reflect on it long is that she raised her second son in a pretty dramatically different way that she didn't Mm -hmm. see. And in this sense, I don't No one ever wants to hear this about their mother or their child. I just, I, and when he described her behavior that way, I was like, oh, she's not, she's like every other mom. That's like a cliche too. Like you raise the first kid way differently and then everyone after is kind of like you loosen the grip, you know? Like that's just, Mm -hmm. that's like a universal motherhood truth. I don't even know if we could call it a cliche. (laughs) And And I ask you to weigh in on that, but I won't. I don't ever want to, you know, rely on your anecdotes about parenting or whatever. But so... When he talked about that, that was like the first time I saw her as not a just like legendary, iconic, unique figure. I was like, oh, that's just like, so she was just a mother then doing mother things, you know, just loosening the grip on the second child. And that's just such a common thing anyway. So I think that did add in that final layer for me, for her to think like she is probably the most complete person in this story, but more than him, maybe even, I don't know. And I admired, I think... To get to the question specifically, though, like what role does women play? I think for her, it's to to do all the work of this book, which is to show him all the most interesting lessons, to add in the chaos that his that also was reflected in his life's upbringing, and to show that even with hard times, horrific things, and even you know being treated, I would say pretty um, incorrectly or something by her, beaten, whatever, that you can still find love in that. You can still find love in a difficult situation. So I'll end on that simplistic thought for her. And so, yeah, that my main response would want to be about her. Loved reading about her. Mm-hmm. thought she was, as I said at the very beginning of part one, just give me a book that she would write or narrate. <laughs> That's, I think, what I, what I want to hear from. The only other ones we already talked about, right? When he takes out the girl in the matric dance, the other, and we discussed that, kind of the complexity of that there. Did you think that worked as a comedy bit? The whole, like, oh, my God, I'd never spoken to her, even though we went on a bunch of double dates. Like, I've never said a... I mean, he does then say, like, well, I said English commands, but never... I, it's, you know, we have to write it off as the, it, I'm sure it happened that way. It does seem stranger than fiction or something in, in a way that maybe is not good. I, it didn't work for me because it, maybe it was too much of a twist, as it were. And the, he, his friends coming out to leer at her again, just kind of an uncomfortable scene. I don't, I don't think that was meant to be comedic. I think that was meant to be awkward and uncomfortable for even for the reader. But did you enjoy that moment as a moment of comedy or something? I didn't look at it as a moment of comedy necessarily. I mean, I guess kind of like irony, um, which is something that he uses um, quite often in in the memoir. But like, yeah, the 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 guys coming to leer at her 
And then the fact that he never actually spoke to her. I was like, so again, we have this idea of like, she's just a commodity. They're just using her because of her looks. They don't care about what she has to actually say or anything like that. Right. So again, it's this weird, just commodification of a woman. Yeah. And so at the end of that, that story, I was just kind of like, ugh. Yeah, I just don't think these, I don't think those anecdotes came off quite either as he intended or maybe he just, that's how he wanted them to seem. But they, again, just didn't leave me with a great impression. I, I understand that he's trying to present blunders and say, and I, I think we're just supposed to infer, of course, from a lot of this is I've learned a lot. I'm different. I'm, I wouldn't do that to a person, to all that stuff. Like, yeah, if we air out our teenage laundry, it's no one's going to come off looking like a a scholar and a gentleman or whatever you want to phrase it. <laughs> but, <For sure. laughs> but the lack of, the thing is he, do, he isn't satisfactory in those moments of like, for all the reflective cliches he loves to d- use, he doesn't really use many in those moments that I think could maybe put a bow and make it seem less creepy. I, it just, for some reason in those moments, it didn't feel like he went to that drawing board that he, and so in, it did, those moments did come off odd. Final thing then, because I'm already over long and haven't prepped. <laughs> the Do you remember the girl he know, knew in, I think, middle school he, he walked home with who then they tried to set him up with her? His friends did? It was like when he was a little yes. younger. That's the yeah. so that's the only exception. It did provide an interesting moment. Now he at one point uses this as sort of a way to counter some American cliches, which is you know just just wait, be patient with the girl, and it'll happen like in the Hollywood moment way. It'll oh, the love will be revealed in the last second. You know, it's this is how romantic comedies or even just romance movies in the states often want to portray it, pop culture things. And so he didn't really tell her he was into her because he was so nervous or he thought i think he even says i played the long game the super long game i think was a quote like that he said i I think Mm -hmm. that relationship of all the girls and women he knows is was the healthiest because he said they would just have regular amiable chats walk home you know they enjoyed each other's company got along fine you know she was clever and they made each other laugh and it was great but then of course he you know dovetails that into a kind of awkward attempted romance or whatever and so, I don't know, I, I feel like even that relationship ended up couched in some cliche in a way, or I know he tries to use it to counter some cliche. But yeah, I think in the end, greater connections, as your question put it, between society, I, I guess I would just have to say it comes back to the mom, and that he has this kind of challenged, difficult, even chaotic relationship, maybe even a little abusive, if we can use that word with a maybe a small A or not, you know, not in the legal or kind of like not in the literal physical sense, but it it does seem a little manipulative. I guess we can use that word instead, but, and that, yeah, that that even then there's, it's okay or that you can be loved through that, I guess would be my, my final rambling takeaway. This is a good demonstration Mm -hmm. of why I should prepare for these in advance. I think (laughs) any, (laughs) any, any final thoughts uh, on, on his relationship with women in the book, other than, I guess you could say a million things about his mom. What do you want to say about her? She seems like an amazing lady. I, I, I agree with you that I would love to see like in the middle, I would have loved to have seen more of her as well because it's like at the beginning and then at the end we get a lot of his relationship with his mother and like her life. But then like in the middle when he's with, you know, in doing his stuff in Alex, we like get nothing of her. Yeah. I think it's in that final chapter that he dedicates to her though, that he does clarify because the relationship with Abel had become more abusive and because she wouldn't leave, he just disappeared then. He just said, okay, I'm just going to, 
I'm not going to be a part of your life. I don't want to be a part of this, which I think the last chapter certainly is the heaviest be obviously just because of the events of it and everything and the ideas it brings up, the issues it brings up. And I, I don't know if there's a lot of criticism to leverage at him. I think that's a perfectly natural reaction when, if your mom starts a new family and you see, I mean, he, he intervened in the ways that he could, but he was also a victim right. of abuse and you can't, you just can't predict how a person will respond to that kind of thing. I certainly, yeah, that, that ending was definitely tragic for almost all parties and didn't really, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I can't leverage criticism about that part of their relationship against him. And I wouldn't even want to, cause it's, that's just too messy and complex. There's too much trauma there that you don't, you really just can't hold anyone up to any sort of standard. I, well, other, we can hold Abel up to some standards, I think, but we, yeah. we, we can't hold Trevor up against them in that way. It would feel, yeah. that feels wrong to me. Yeah. So let me throw my essay question at you, Amanda. I've got one prepped here, and I will preface this with what I've written here, which is that there are a lot of uh, cute ways I could have asked this, many other ways I could have phrased it to put a little spin, to put a little English on this question. I think the two I thought of were, would you read this book to your daughter, and and then maybe at what age? And then as a different way to phrase it, like, in which grade would you teach this book? You know, in what grade of Americanized school system would you want to teach it? I think I'm just going to go simpler, and I did want to go simple. Who should read this book? And then as a follow-up question, more pointed, who do you think must read it if that person exists? So this is a really tough question, and I and I had to think about it overnight. Um, so mm-hmm. ultimately, um, what I did was I thought about, okay, so what what is the purpose of this um, memoir as far as like what I understood from it? And so I think that I pulled two different themes um, from this book and and his target audience. And I think that the target audience could benefit from uh, this. So the first theme is, um, which we were just talking about, um, mm-hmm. is, is women, specifically um, victims of abuse. Um, oh, okay. So I think that because his mom in particular, right, his mom is such a huge facet of his life and a huge facet of this memoir um, where he at the end especially explains like people keep asking like why don't you just leave him why don't you just go right Um, and like she's such a strong throughout the entire memoir she's a strong independent woman she fights for what she wants I mean she is she's amazing right Right. and then at the end he starts talking about how like the way that he sees her as a victim of abuse he doesn't he doesn't understand. He's just like, why don't you just leave him? But mm-hmm. later he says, well, of course you can't leave him. And she says, I cannot leave him. He's going to kill us. But also he he makes the point like in this society that we live in, if she left with a mother of three kids and is a single woman. Yeah. That's just gonna like. I mean, nobody would give her a break, right? She's she's stuck in this situation. Even her own family, there's no support there. Her mom keeps saying, "Just go back to him. It's just what they do." Like, you, yeah, if you if you leave him and then get involved with another person, who's to say that that's not going to be worse, right? So there's this whole like lack of support uh, culturally and in the family even. And so I think. With those arguments and, and with that idea, I think anybody who just is like, 
oh, well, I don't understand. If, you, if you're if you being abused, why don't you just leave? I think that you need to read this and see that, like, victims of abuse aren't just, like, people who cower and, like, don't have a voice and stuff like that. You you should read this and, and take away from it that strong, independent people, and I, I say people because it's not just women who are abused, obviously, um, but they, they're not weak. They are strong. They just do not have the support a lot of the time in order to do it, right? There's There are so many different reasons for people to stay with an abuser. And so I think that he points mm-hmm. out the complexities of that um, very nicely with, by, by showing how strong his mom is at the beginning and then just kind of like offering up the cultural um, reasons for not leaving. Yeah, I think... Well, if I can interject in your essay, I guess there's there's so much to unpack yeah. there, but I don't know. I mean, I completely agree with you, and then at the same time, I shrug and think, is the final chapter too litter too little, too late for that reader? For someone who's like, I really want to know about these dynamics. I'm curious about this. Anyway, just bringing my cynical reading into it, but I, it was a, it was a strong ending. You know, strong strong. I think mm-hmm. in terms of just depth, emotion. Even even the I don't think the writing ever changed. Frankly, I was you know I <laughs> I went in pretty pretty open eyed, like waiting for something to change my mind, and nothing did. But it does end with a pretty potent example of her, you know, strength, stubbornness, kind of you know her vitality, all that stuff. Do you think she's mm-hmm. in the book enough to recommend it on her account only? I think mm, almost. Yeah, yeah. If she had been more in the middle chapters Mm -hmm. then a hundred percent (laughs) yes yeah yeah for sure yeah i almost if if this were like if i were interviewing you and i was some journalist and this was some kind of 60 minutes interview i would like immediately be like will you hit your daughter and but you know we don't have to (laughs) that would be because it's you know well i think that's just one of the interesting things about her is that yeah and he he so accepted that version of her love i have a much stronger, maybe negative reaction to that. But I, you know, the context of his life life and everything, he explains it well. So yeah. I think, yeah, she makes for one heck of a study and one complex figure for sure. Any other mm-hmm. thoughts on who should read this then? Um, so the other theme that I picked up on mm-hmm. is um, obviously about like apartheid and, and how yeah. racism is more than just a written law, although he does point out like the written laws, it's also to do with like um, just a cultural mindset that was uh, brought about by the legal system and then continues on from that. So I think that anybody who does not believe in the 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 fact of systemic racism or the idea of like racial profiling and and the fact that that still exists um not just in south africa but in america as well because trevor noah takes takes the time to make the comparisons between apartheid and um the united states even current united states politics and stuff like that he he's obviously drawing a parallel between these two i think that um people who just don't think that that actually exists they they might actually learn something about that um and about yeah the actual existence of that by reading this and i think yeah some of the i thought the alex section as i'll say for the 20th time was quite lucid and if you 
if you didn't, if you've never seen The Wire, which I think would be the American cultural touchpoint for, hey, have you ever thought deeply about how people in, I guess what we can say again, quote unquote, a ghetto, what that what that looks like, what the systems of it are like, what the institutions that deal with it are like, the complexities of the economic, like if you, it, that would, I think, be the quick cultural talk in maybe in America to just check and see like, how much have you thought about that? Or would, do you have any, you know, what's your exposure to the that or something? This, I think for a person who has no exposure or something, that section would be, he explains in qu- quite you know, great clarity and with such clean, his language is always pretty straightforward and clean, right? Like he explains mm-hmm. how, how it works, how you get, can get trapped in that, how it can feel comfortable, how it, you know, lures you in the promise of a little bit more, but then something will level you out again. And, and so it, I think all of that was really lucid. So I would add, add on to not only the apartheid or the, the race dynamic too, but that, that to me would also be someone who maybe should read this then if that, if you really have never thought about those dynamics or something, or maybe it's just something you want to see how it worked in another country. The spoiler to that is basically identically to any other like really impoverished area. It does, there's not, (laughs) you know, the culture stuff with, especially the, yeah, like you said, how the women are treated and some of the, those societal expectations are perhaps take on a different edge or a bit, a bit of difference, but I, the remark, the similarities to it are, are pretty striking. So to American yeah. life in, in that similar conditions. Cool. Anyone else mm-hmm. you think should read it? Uh, that was all that I could come up with. That was, yeah, that was no, a tough question. Of course. No, no, no. And two, two great answers. And uh, notably, you didn't say anyone who wants to read a funny book. <laughs> yeah. Um... He does try. He does try. I would say yeah. watch his stand up, honestly. I don't. <laughs> it's yeah. clear to me that stand up comedians don't need to write books uh, necessarily or something. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, would you read it to your daughter? And what age? I guess I can follow up with my original questions. That's a good question. Um, uh, if I, I think that I, I would. Um, yeah. But yeah. not until. Um, she had reached the point where she could understand um, some of the historical aspects of that and the, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the context of, of all that stuff. And, and, you know, kids, they don't really know much about like race or anything like that when they're like real little, they just, they're just like, Oh, this person is the same as me because of this. Right. So yeah, yeah. it wouldn't be until, I don't know, at earliest, I would say, like, middle school. But, yeah, I mean, I would read it to her just sure, sure. to to let her know, like, because there was stuff about, in school, I didn't learn all of that detail about apartheid, so I think that it would be a nice supplement to that. I would 100% teach this book back in my middle school classes. I think, yeah. in fact, it's quite, uh, would be a much more enjoyable, breezy read than the things I was showing them, <laughs> which I already thought would be, <laughs> you know, in a sense, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I didn't ask that question as a trap. I was like, as, as I was reading, I was like, oh, this, this like short story section or something would make for, I think, a pretty compelling study, you know, cut out yeah. a couple swear words, you're good to go in most public schools, I think. Yeah. For sure. Excellent. Let's move to the final two sections then. Uh, we'll begin with the lost pages, which I'll toss to you first because I already spoiled mine. But this is the section when we convey just something we wish was covered in more depth in the book or maybe an additional chapter or section or something. So basically something we wished was more prominent in this one. Amanda, take it away. Um, so I said that this book begins and ends with his mother. And I just would like to see more of his mother like in the middle. Mm, yeah. Um, just because I think she's a dynamic person. Um, but also I just really enjoyed how her 
her teachings and her perceptions have like had a direct influence on some of his interactions and and his own perception so i'd like to see that developed a little bit more um especially in how his personal understanding of the world around him um was shaped by his mother um especially after going to alex and seeing you know without his mom like i would i she doesn't have to necessarily physically be in those stories but to make a clearer um I guess, connection to some of the ideas that she had put into his head and relating that to his experiences in Alex. And I think mm-hmm. that would also just help with streamlining some of, of like his purpose as a writer in this um, and perhaps allow him to develop a narrative voice with a clearer theme if he were to just like really focus on perhaps that particular relationship in his life. I completely agree with that one. I, I'd go back to to mine at... Just a just a slimming of the focus or a narrowing of it or something. I just think would have helped a bit. I think when you yeah. go broad, you risk losing the details, which are actually the compelling thing. I can't comment on the style. I've commented enough, too much probably. <laughs> so, and I don't think that would profoundly change anything, honestly. But if you slow this book down and you zoom in, I think it could help because. If you force a writer to do that, if you force yourself to do it, it often cuts cliche because you have to think more deeply, more analytically for really nuanced things, really specific things. And I just think that could help push, could have helped push this. Like I, there was a lot in the Alex section that I just thought, wow, what if that, what if his relationship to that one person got, got 20 pages and then he had to do it again with that other person. Instead, they get a couple sentences about, you know, a casual description of their, you know, it just... I don't know. I feel like there was so much left to be said in that section. So it's what yeah. I'll remember the most for sure. Other than just like you said, his mother is a just the Titanic figure of the whole book, really. Yeah, she is. So shout outs to her. And I it makes sense now why he speaks of her in the present tense, which so the foreshadowing, by the way, Amanda, it was wrapped up. <laughs> he did he did <laughs> drop the most aggressive foreshadowing of all time, but he did pay it off. So Nice. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, Let's move now to the final segment, the critical assistance portion. This is when we go outside of ourselves for some help and insight and analysis. So we've pulled some articles that we're going to quote and just discuss. Some other critics have weighed in on the book, and we want to hear what they have to say as well. Do you want to go first this week with your review or your critical assistance? Yeah, go ahead. Mine comes from um, Kirkus Reviews. So um, Back to it. Back to the Yeah, back to it. I, I like because I uh, you'll we'll see. Um, <laughs> in a gritty memoir, Noah relates his harsh experiences growing up during the final years of apartheid and the chaotic and racially charged conflicts that would continue to undermine the newly won freedom that was established in its aftermath. His story unfolds through a series of loosely assembled essays that touch on his home life and school environment and later expand outward to various cities and neighborhoods and his encounters with petty crime and confrontations with domestic violence. So the other reviews that I read were just largely summaries of what he wrote. Yeah. So Kirk- yeah. <laughs> I'm about to I'm about to unleash one from the New York Times that'll make you unsubscribe to that publication. <laughs> so Kirkus Reviews is just one of the the few that um, I encountered that actually like made comments on the style. So yeah. here he calls the the writer of this article um, wrote a, se- a series of loosely assembled essays so 
there were a couple things that I um, agreed with. The series of loose, so it's a series and it's loosely assembled. I think that's a great term <laughs> as far as yeah, like what we've yeah. noticed about um, his style and, and not quite uh, a, a clear uh, theme. But I thought it was interesting too that this person wrote that they were essays rather than anecdotes or stories. And so... I was thinking about that and I was like, there are some elements to it that do seem more like essays rather than like something that you would find in a memoir. Yeah, I could, I could almost see that. And the, the time jumping, uh, cause it's, we, we, it's mostly chronological, but then especially like you said, the parts with Alex kind of disappear his mother from the narrative. And then he only explains why that happened later. So it's kind of confusing. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it doesn't cohere. Um, any other quotes from that one? Sure. Um, on the whole, those studded with insight and provocative social criticism, Noah's material doesn't feel fully digested. As an accomplished adult humorist looking back to his childhood self, the attempt to inject a humorous tone into these grim proceedings frequently hits an awkward note. A somewhat disjointed narrative with flashes of brilliant storytelling and acute observations on South African culture. Hmm. Um, so he, the person wrote like, uh, I think a, a, a fair and even handed review here. Um, so the studded with insight and provocative social criticism. Yes. I think that there are um, some points that he makes that I am like, yep, that. Yep, that's good. Uh, yep, could that you, makes sense to me. Could you hit me with a provocative one? Just real quick. I don't even mean to put you on a spot or sound caustic or combative or something. Because I, mm-hmm. I see that and I think of what what were the big ones that jump out, right? He's a chameleon because he can speak different languages. He says that language bridges cultures. He says that racism is bad. He might even have written the line racism. I think he says racism is stupid or something. I forget the he line. He says racism is stupid. Cool. Yeah. Racism <laughs> is stupid, which I, I, you have to say that in a mocking tone because you have to say it. Like I don't, anyway, yeah, racism is stupid. I'll say it definitively now. And so I don't, okay, do any of those hit you as sharp or sharply, or what's their wording again? Sorry. Not provocative, provocative or acute. None of that is acute or provocative to me. But hit me with some, though, please. Uh, Let me think. Um, I liked the language one and and how um, language specifically is the real division, um, even more so than race, which was something that um, I found Uh, interesting because of the relationship that um, with um, native speaker. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so that one sticks out to me the most. <laughs> the the the, t- the relationship between kind of like the the connections between love and abuse, there could be something provocative there. He has certainly mm-hmm. lived through re- relationships that were that created provocation, but I just don't think his takeaways are that provocative. They're just hey, abuse and love can be tangled up. Like I don't I don't know yeah. if I take away something acute though. That's the, that word bugs me a ton because I, I thought that most of this was quite the opposite. Yeah. was really broad and like very generalized that, that so that one i would not ride with but yeah well he does continue and say the material doesn't feel fully digested so yeah yeah, yeah. i also we'll, we'll get to a quote in the new york times one but there's yeah there's some interesting ways to describe this go ahead yeah and um the the attempts to inject a humorous tone 
um, hits an awkward note. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That that yeah. we see some of the examples of almost stand-up comedy without the the audio to support that. But in, yeah. in the awkwardness, I was thinking of specifically his interactions with like the women and like the the joke about um, his date at the Matrix dance. I suppose it's supposed to be a joke at the end, and I was just like, yeah, that was just more awkward mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and than funny. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think that that's a, a fair point as well. Yeah, for sure. I did pull from the New York Times, which I've spoiled by now. By This is a review um, from, I think, Books of the Times or some segment or column they have. This is by Michiko Kakutani, which is just called Trevor Noah's Raw Account of Life Under Apartheid. And it's New York Times, I think, 2019 published or something. A couple quotes to discuss from this one. Some stories will be familiar to fans who have followed the author's stand-up act, but his accounts here are less the polished anecdotes of a comedian underscoring the absurdities of life under apartheid than raw, deeply personal reminiscences, that's a tough word, (laughs) about being (laughs) half-white, half-black in a country where his birth violated any number of laws, statutes, and regulations, which is a quote. So where's the i want the polished thing then i don't if his stand-up act has a lot of these same anecdotes polished with timing and wit i this is polished and that it's clearly been edited and it's cleanly written and has it is um clear and easy to read but i it's not been polished to be stand-up funny or something and Mm -hmm. there are absurdities to mine there and again he does attempt i think the attempts are pretty clear you know when he elongates a swear word like fuck like okay that yep that is trying to get a laugh of a kind but it just doesn't none of it feels alive to me it just felt very bland on the page as i've said um raw deeply personal yeah i don't i don't think he withheld on us or something i think even like we talked about with some of the ways he portrays women and his connections to them maybe he should have thought more not that i want him to lie or something but i'm just surprised that his adult self couldn't have edited or reflected on that in a more meaningful way and so i maybe too raw or something Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was surprised by the way he left some of those hanging without a further, yeah. you know, and, and I already read in part one, but the, the section where he ends by kind of absolving himself of any wrongdoing in his life in a very, I don't know if this, this might be a cliched summary or something, but in a very Buddhist kind of like, I'm not worried about anything, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm just in detached bliss from all of this. Uh, and so I don't, it, that part felt odd to me too. Next quote, Mr. Noah offers a a series of sharp-edged snapshots of life in the township of Soto, where his maternal grandmother lived and where he recalls 99.9% quote of the residents were black and his light skin made him a neighborhood curiosity. And then he remembers a quote from it. I wanted to pull this to show you that I think 70% of this review was quotes from the book. um, (laughs) With almost nothing to say except for to summarize the entire book. I truly don't know... I would not file this under literary criticism at all. Like, there's no, <laughs> there's hardly an analytical word here. I, he does say sharp-edged, an adjective phrase that I think you'd be hard-pressed to disagree with because, again, Noah presents a lot of ugly truths. He doesn't shy away from the details, the hardship. Like, it's, it, it, yeah, you, you couldn't call this sharp-edged. I could call it blunt-edged because the writing, I think, is blunt-edged. But the, but the snapshots are sharp. It's definitely a memoir with a lot of intensity with, because the details are intense because he lived through intensity. So, right. Uh, but then, of course, he just dives into the rest of that paragraph. It's just a quote in a summary of a quote. So I, 
<laughs> that's quite a review. Um, two more things. I did pull some that is kind of, it dares upon criticism. Um, in the end, Born a Crime is not just an unnerving account of growing up in South Africa under apartheid, but a love letter to the author's remarkable mother who grew up in a hut with 14 cousins. And I'm going to cut it off there because you'll never guess what the rest of the paragraph is. It's like seven different quotes from the book that summarizes his mother's life. So what do we get from reading this? That it's an unnerving account. I, I didn't find it so. I find the way words are put together to unnerve me not a fact. You could read about apartheid on Wikipedia and be unnerved because to see racism codified is unnerving. It, it, I would say right. it's more than that. So it's like, what, it, what it, can stories do? They can provide life and vivacity and detail and put a human face on it, which certainly it does. He lived a real life and it, it was intense. But I, but the writing didn't do any of that. It didn't do any of the work, basically. His life mm-hmm. did the work. The writing did nothing. And so I don't know. I Yes, it's unnerving. I don't know what to say about the writing. He summarizes it well. <laughs> uh, final quote here, and then I'll wrap up. Um, it's the story of a fiercely religious woman who attributes her miraculous survival from a gunshot wound to the head inflicted by Abel to her faith, a woman who took her son to three churches on a Sunday, as well as a prayer meeting, and then goes on, even when there were dangerous riots in the streets and few dared venture out of their homes another well-said summary from the new york times nothing that's it that's the best analysis i could find in it i i maybe i missed a sentence or two so that's what (laughs) no commentary on how the book is put together no commentary on the tone the rhetoric of it all the construction the voice of it that's it. So if you want to read a summary of this book, well, firstly, if you've made it through this many pods, you don't have to. We've done, we've summarized the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if for some reason you want to hear another summary of it, just go read that that piece in the New York Times um, and you'll get it because it, it didn't really offer me any insight. That's why I wanted to pull it, actually. Because it's, yeah. you know, to get a glowing review, to get something in the Times, that is that does hold real cultural cachet in America. It does, I think, represent a certain sort of it's like a prestige honor and New York times is still a little mainstream. Um, and you know, I think critically they're usually at least a little bit sharp. So I don't know. I, I mean, I know I had obviously a negative view of this book and my bias is obvious at this point, but I d- did any of those quotes do anything. Did they reveal truths to you? No. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's pretty telling that this person did not, write a lot about the style and I think it's because the most interesting thing about this uh, memoir is is the the discussions about like uh, about apartheid and and the experiences not about the writing itself yeah yeah so I think that's pretty telling yeah it is I was hoping for some kind of and I did actually so I was almost going to pull remember when I pulled a student newspaper review from a college newspaper I don't it was like yeah. Houston something there is one that I don't want to misquote the name of it but if you google born a crime book review and then it's something that NC State it is a black student organization from NC State and UNC and they do a publication wing at the part of their organization those like universities have a joint student org and the student org does a publication Mm-hmm. And the, <laughs> I don't even know why I'm saying this because it's only like to be mean. I, I don't know why I'm going to say it, but th- that review opens with the author attempting to Im- imitate Noah's style. Like in the first paragraph, they kind of like pretend right like Noah, which I mean, that can be a fun like literary exercise, right? To imitate a style. 
But mm-hmm. as I read the intro, it was, and they reveal at the end of that paragraph that that's what they were trying to do. They, there's some awkward sense in there of like, okay, now I'm going to stop pretending to be Trevor Noah. Haha, I'm going to be myself or, you know, I'm misquoting that, but that's like what they transition out of. But as mm-hmm. I read the first paragraph, all I could think was like, this is like pretty poorly written for a published college <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> Oh, oh my god man. that was like my initial reaction was just like oh good grief like who this is like okay and that you know i like looked back up at the top and like you know i clicked on like the about us page and i was just like what's going on like this is pretty bad and then of course <laughs> of course it's uh it's one final betrayal i think i think we can end on that i had that was a hilarious reaction if you search those terms you'll find out what i forget the name of the publication so my apologies to that but yeah it's i don't know signing off you know (laughs) signing out and signing off (laughs) uh any final words on born a crime by trevor noah nope i'm good okay excellent well we do have other books coming up in order dear listeners if you've made it this far we'll give you a quick preview of what we've chosen we always pick at least three or four books in advance so the next three books we have in order are you can't keep a good woman down by alice walker my favorite thing is monsters by ml ferris and the dark tower the gunslinger by stephen king that's a part of a series, by the way. So it's the first book of the Dark Tower Stephen King series. Those are the ones we have coming up. Um, Amanda, any final words in general before we sign out tonight? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We always do appreciate that and recommend us to friends and family, etc. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. 